So at the break, I was considering telling you what the talk was about. And I decided not to because it's um, on the hindrances. And for some reason, there was just this feeling of (laughs) dun-dun-dun that went along with that. And, uh, but actually, I'm hoping by the end of this talk, instead of the hindrances, dun, 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 it'll be, it's just the hindrances. In fact, maybe that's what we could call the talk, Ross, is just the hindrances. Um, If you're not familiar with the hindrances, this is a list, another one of those Buddhist lists, but it's a really, as I find most of them to be, it's it's a helpful one, and one that I think we can all very much relate to. Uh, the hindrances are obstacles. Whoop, are obstacles? Um, they've been. They can be said as impurities of the mind, um, mental uh, states that really are an addition to the raw experience of what's actually happening. roadblocks to our spiritual progress. Um, And there's five of them. And they are sensual desire, ill will, uh, sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse, uh, or skeptical doubt. So I'm going to go through all of these and say a little bit more about them and why they're in hindrances. How do they hinder us? How do they get in the way of our seeing clearly? I want to say also that uh, these hindrances, they're, they're um, stated in the suttas not as emotional states. Uh, you know, emotions, they come. And sometimes there's... there's uh, Uh, there's an appropriateness to the way we experience our emotional life often. Hindrances are actually really based in uh, the roots of greed, hatred, and delusion. These these stains on our mind, stains on our experience, um, manifestations that aren't actually in alignment with what's true. So I wanted to make that distinction as we go through this. There's a beautiful simile in the suttas where the Buddha talks about the hindrances as if they were um, impurities that are found in pure gold. So obviously the gold is no longer pure because there's iron, copper, tin, lead, and silver. And when all of these... uh, Impurities are mixed in with the gold. It's no longer pliant. Uh, it's no longer wieldy. It lacks radiance. It's brittle, and it cannot be routed well. It can't be worked with. And so the same with our mind. When it is hindered by these five hindrances, it's no longer pliable. It's no longer workable. It's not radiant. Um, if you've ever been consumed by uh, desire or you've been in that place of resistance and hatred and ill will, um, if you've ever been stuck in sloth and torpor, m- basically just that, that tired, soupy mind, uh, laziness, um, just that, that disinterest that sometimes arises when we're trying to follow what's happening in the moment. Um, if you've ever experienced restlessness, that anxiety that sometimes comes up, um, the inability to settle the mind, or if you've ever been stuck in doubt, just this deep uncertainty and unease, dis-ease with the way things are and, and really unsure if you can really stay with it, unsure about your practice. Um, all of these are... Uh, getting in the way of seeing things clearly. Oftentimes, there's, we're really stuck in this state of um, um, stuck in our personality, stuck in the big I. Um, all of these hindrances, squeezing our view to something smaller than, than is actually possible. Um, 
So uh, these, are, these are experiences that we all have. Sometimes we experience a hindrance, just one hindrance, and it's really clear and we can see it as it is. Other times we might be experiencing multiple hindrances at the same time. If any of you have ever sat a uh, retreat, long retreat, short retreat, even in a day long, and you're spending time in silence, in quiet, you may notice multiple hindrances, and it's really actually quite common, especially around day three, if you're sitting a week-long retreat or even a a month-long retreat, that you have a hindrance attack. All of a sudden, it's all five, and they're all there at once, and you're just bouncing from, you know, desire, why can't it be like this? I want more of this. It's so pleasant and and, uh, disgust, and oh, I hate this. I don't want this here, and doubt and restlessness and it's all there the sleepiness kicks in and so you're having a hindrance attack and sometimes we have that in our lives here where we just feel totally out of control you know the the internal experience is just out of control and it might be completely peaceful it was so quiet as we were all sitting here together i don't know if you noticed that but it was just so quiet. Usually we have you know, a lot of noise of people coming in and out or there's traffic or someone walks by and is having a conversation, but I didn't notice that so much this evening. It was so, so quiet. But that may not have been a reflection of what was going on internally. <laughs> so maybe you were experiencing some of these hindrances as you were sitting here, and it's really quite common. So I want to I tease these out of the overall experience so that we can start bringing attention to them, start um, having a relationship with them, starting to get to know them. So I photocopied um, this introduction uh, to Utejaniya's book, Don't Look Down on the Defilements. Um, (laughs) This is a fantastic book. I think you can get it on Amazon or you might even be able to download the PDF um, if you go to Access to Insight or just Google, don't look down on the defilements. And it's filled actually with cartoons and these little Dharma talks, basically. They're, it's fantastic. But anyway, this is his introductions. It says, what are defilements? Defilements are not only the gross manifestation of greed, hatred, and delusion, but also are there... Are, oops, but also all their friends and relatives, even the very distant ones, see if you have ever had one of the following or similar thoughts cross your mind. So keep this in mind as uh, I read these out. Those lights should not be on at this time of day. This behavior is so irritating. He should not have done that. I could do it a lot faster. I am a hopeless meditator. My mind cannot even stay on arising and falling for one minute. Yesterday my meditation was so good. Today I am all over the place. Wow, this was a wonderful sit. Now I need to be really mindful so I don't lose this feeling. I must stay in the Dharma hall. Others will think I am lazy if I don't. I need an extra portion of potatoes today because it's good for my health. (laughs) Yuck, the salad had onions in it. No bananas again. He is so selfish, so inconsiderate. Why is this happening to me? Who is responsible for cleaning the toilets? Why is this yogi walking here? They shouldn't be making so much noise. There are too many people here. I can't meditate. Someone is sitting in my seat. She is so pretty. He walks so elegantly. (laughs) All such thoughts are motivations, are motivated by the defilements. Don't underestimate them. Have you ever told someone you are not angry even though you clearly did not like what he or she had said? Do you sometimes talk negatively about your boss, a member of your family, or even a good friend? Do you occasionally tell a dirty joke? Do you habitually sweet-talk people into doing things, doing things for you? Do you automatically raise your voice when someone does not agree with your point of view? All such talk is motivated by defilements. Watch out for it. 
Have you ever knocked really hard on someone's door or refused to enter a room simply because someone you dislike was in there? Or jumped, or jumped a queue or used the shampoo someone, someone left in the bathroom or made a private call using your employee's phone line or done any similar actions, all sorts of unthinkingly. All such actions are motivated by the defilements. Become aware of them. So the defilements uh, are not just manifestations in our minds sometimes. Sometimes they run the show. Sometimes our actions and our speech are heavily motivated by these defilements. And so he's saying, watch out, get to know them. Be aware when they arise. Be aware when they're not present. Get to know your relationship with them. And so that's what we're going to explore this evening. So what do they hinder exactly? What is it that they're getting in the way of? They're hindering the three characteristics. I'm going to name a bunch of lists now. Um, So if you're not a list person, please excuse me. But the three characteristics. uh, So the truth of of dukkha, uh, of, of suffering or unsatisfactoriness. They get in the way of us seeing clearly that um, there is this unsatisfactoriness and that we have an ongoing relationship with it, that it's not personal. Um, uh, The truth of non-self, this is not just about us. In fact, it's not about us at all. Uh, The truth of impermanence, that things are constantly changing. These are the three characteristics gets in the way of us seeing those, of even remembering that they exist because the hindrances keep us in this tight little world of ours. They get in the way of the truth of karma, of cause and effect, um, that our actions and our speech have an effect, that the clarity and understanding that we have has an effect, that acting from defilements and believing in those defilements have an effect. They get in the way of us understanding uh, the Four Noble Truths, um, the Eightfold Path, actually being on the path. Sometimes they derail us. We end up going down a different road if we're not aware uh, that these are present, that these are all hindrances that we've most likely been cultivating more than we even know in the many years that we've been alive doesn't make us bad people. It doesn't mean you're a bad person or there's something wrong with you. Uh, it just means that there's this peace that we are constantly cycling through our experience that doesn't actually need to be there. It's something that um, is extra and it's something that keeps us on the cycle of dukkha, of experiencing life in this way that is unacceptable, in this way that just doesn't feel right, or in this way where we're constantly in friction with the flow of how things are. These are the defilements. So let's look at them a little closer. Uh, The first one, sensual desire. I find this one interesting to talk about because I think that we have a really strong misunderstanding of sensual desire in our culture. We gravitate towards sensual sensual desire. We have been taught uh, and are motivated culturally to sensual desire because we misunderstand and we misinterpret that those things that we think we want will give us happiness. It really comes down to happiness. That you know, when you, for example, when you drive into San Francisco, we don't have that many billboards on this side, which is really nice, but you go into San Francisco and that's the first thing, um, besides the beautiful skyline and the bay and all that, I feel like there's this constant advertising that's happening as you're going down the freeway there and all of these uh, billboards telling you what you need, what you should have, who you should be competing with, Um, what you should be doing with your life. 
And of course, we don't listen to them all the time, but it's a constant message that we're getting, whether it's you know, in our car driving down the road, or it's commercials on TV or on the radio, or even just in conversation with the people around us. This idea that more equals happiness. And we know better than that. We really do. But we get stuck in it. Every now and then we believe it. And our whole life gets really small and tight. And as if everything depends on that. I need that to equal my happiness. And so, of course, we're constantly leaning forward into that if we're stuck in that belief, in that desire for something It's always the desire of something we don't have. Once we have it, the desire is gone, right? There's nothing to desire in it anymore. It's gone. And so then it's the next thing. Well, that didn't last. Now I have to get the next. So we're constantly leaning forward into our experience, wanting more, more, more. And this is really unsettling, actually. It's a really unsettling way of living. Um, but we're, we're used to that. And I think that sometimes there's this idea that, um, that sensual desire, without it, we're not really living. You know? I love sensual desire. And of course we love sensual desire. Who doesn't love sensual desire from time to time? You know, having a beautiful meal. And oh, it's so good. And if I can't experience sensual desire, then how will I live and experience joy in my life? It'll just be like a flat line. And this is where I think we really have misinterpreted what this is. So the sensual desire is that leaning forward, that needing to to have something that isn't actually here. When we're sitting there and experiencing life, and for example, having this wonderful meal, and we're there and we're with it, and we're there with the senses, and we're tasting it, and we're noticing how uh, it brings us maybe some warmth and nourishment and energy, and we're grateful for that, and we're enjoying it, and we're enjoying the people that we're with, and we're really present with just what is. The sensual desire isn't there. Unless you're wanting to keep it there forever, and there's this, under, this feeling like, if I could just have this moment continue forever, my life would be great. And sometimes we have that, right? But if you're not stuck in that, then you are living. You're really living. You are present for what is here right now, and it's wonderful. That's where the true joy and the happiness comes from. Not from this but actually sitting back and just being with what's here. I mean, right here in this room, it's so beautiful. You can look around and look at the uh, stained glass and the flowers and the beautiful statues behind me and each other, and it's quiet and it's safe here. What a wonderful thing to be in. And we don't have to grasp onto it. It's just here, right? It's just present right now. We don't have to do anything about it except to be here with it. So this is the lack of sensual desire. Right now it's just being here with it. And you can feel the nourishment from that. There can be real joy and contentment from that. And that is true happiness. But we forget that and then we get stuck. Right? So with all of the hindrances, there are similes relating it to water. And I love um, the use of water. I'm a water person. And I just, I love the use of water in this tradition. As I find it often speaks to kind of the depth of what we're feeling when we're experiencing, whether it's the hindrances or the lack of hindrances. And so the analogy or the simile for um, sensual desire is like a bowl of water uh, with all these beautiful dyes in the water. So there's yellow and there's orange and there's red and it's just all this beautiful dye and we're captivated by the dye. But there's no clarity there. We can't actually see through. We can't even see our own reflection in it. We're just completely captivated by the dyes, which is only dye, you know. Ill will or aversion often is how we speak of it in this tradition, the word aversion. 
is the next hindrance. And in a way, it's very similar to, in my, in my experience of it anyway, very similar to um, uh, this, this grasping desire, uh, but almost has the opposite effect or feeling to it, where we're pushing away experience. Ugh, this shouldn't be this way. You know, so in one case, we're, we're wanting to feed ourselves by bringing in experience that's not actually here, and the other is pushing away what is here. Um, often the two come together. We don't like what's here right now, so we go and we grasp for something else, a wanting for something different. So there's often that aversion right there with uh, the desire. And so this aversion can be really strong, and some of us are really prone to it. I know that I have my, my bouts of aversion. And my experience with it, having explored it quite a bit, is uh, it's really, a, instead of, it's, it's also looking for happiness, but in its own way, it's, it's more of a protection of what we have. So instead of trying to fill ourselves with happiness from the outside, it's almost like we've got what we have and we're trying to protect it in a way. And anything that might threaten who we are, what we have, uh, we can start to have this closed-down, push-away kind of experience, and then, which often manifests externally in the way that we act or speak. I'll tell you a story. Uh, I, I think this happened about a year ago. I was driving uh, with my partner from the BART in, uh, back home uh, in downtown Oakland. And we were driving on one side of the street and, it, and then there's this center divide that goes down the middle. Uh, and so coming in the other direction, we were at a stoplight. And in, in the opposite direction on the other side, there was a car there and they stopped at the stoplight too. But they proceeded to open their doors and just dump all of these wrappers and McDonald's bags and all this garbage onto the center divide. And I had this reaction <laughs> that was very aversive. <laughs> I can remember it still. There was just this, oh, kind of disgust. And what's wrong with them? What awful people? And just the judgment and the, ugh. I was, it was really upsetting. How could they possibly do that? And my partner next to me, we just kind of looked at each other. And he looked at me and said, they just don't know. They just don't know. They just don't understand. Actually, I was telling him about this on the way over here. He doesn't remember it, but <laughs> I remember it. it was so impactful because for me, I was so, I was so um, contracted in that moment, and it felt really personal. You know, this is my city too. You know, you're messing up my city, and um, yeah, it felt really personal. Like, how could they do this to me? Right? And there it is, the personal, the, the big I, the me, the mine, protecting it. Ugh. They just don't know. And it was true. If they really understood the way that we all affect each other, the way that we are so deeply connected, the way that we're connected to this land, to this earth, to our communities, then there's no way they could dump garbage in the center divide. It just wouldn't be possible. And with that, with that, just that phrase, my whole world kind of went out. All that contraction released and opened. And then there was just compassion. Compassion for them for not knowing, compassion for myself for not knowing, right? No different in, in its own way. It was really a powerful moment. And so when we can bring attention to our aversion and see that it's really most likely a very small view, a small view that at the very base of it, there's a big I 
and mine. Uh, When we can see that, then the opening often leads to compassion and an opening of the heart. In fact, one of the anecdotes, all of these have anecdotes to them, many anecdotes to each one, which is good news, but one of them for ill will and aversion is the practice of metta or loving kindness. And at the practice of all the Brahma Viharas, the, the heart practices in this tradition, uh, are anecdotes to this aversion and ill will. So the water simile for aversion is that uh, it's water that's seething, boiling, bubbling. So there's this heat to it. Um, And also, again, because it's kind of, you know, like if you've ever put the jets on in a hot tub, and you can't really see to the bottom anymore. It's kind of like that, where there's just all this activity, and it just seems, you know, righteous, and I'm right, and they're wrong, and it's mine, and this is me. And really, we're just not being able to see underneath all of that energy, right? So not being able to see clearly through that. There's, um, I don't remember where it is in the suttas, but um, the Buddha at some ta- point is talking about ill will, and he talks about it as uh, the example is grabbing hot coals to throw at another. And of course, before you fling those coals, you're burning yourself. So again, that that heat that's not actually harming the other person as much as it harms yourself, as do all of these hindrances. Oftentimes, and I, I put myself in this category, we can feel really righteous about, you know, how we're feeling about blah, blah, blah. But, um, and there might be some truth to it, you know. It's, Buddhism isn't meant to be completely passive, but it's meant to help us to act from a place of seeing more clearly, not from this tight, fixed view. Um, and so, um, when we can see that really we're just holding on to the coals and we're really in this protective mode, and that's where we're motivated from, in this, from that place of aversion and ill will. Um, we can really start to understand how it's harming ourselves more than it's harming others, as we may have hoped. <laughs> so, not worth hanging on to that coal in the end. The next one is sloth and torpor. Both are kind of... I think strange words, um, but really, uh, what they're what these words are pointing to is this kind of listlessness, this laziness, laziness. Um, uh, sometimes it's drowsiness, but it's more than just sleep. Although sleepiness, which we we all I think are needing more sleep, don't you think? <laughs> For the most of us, you know, we're tired. We, you guys come here. I mean, me too. Seven thirty is actually kind of late, and then you gotta, you know, you're sitting and you've got your eyes closed, and then you're listening to a Dharma talk, and you know, we're we're tired. And you'll notice that when we are feeling really tired, that uh, what happens? We're our energy's low. We're less motivated, aren't we? just a little less motivated. The energy just isn't meeting uh, what we're needing to pay attention to or wanting to pay attention to. And so sometimes it's just sleepiness, but other times it's just laziness. You know, we get into this complacent mode of, well, I could sit here and pay attention to my breath and pay attention to the comings and goings, but... I don't know, I think I'd rather just plan my next vacation or I'm going to plan my, you know, Fourth of July potluck or whatever it is that's coming up uh, for you. My shopping list. (laughs) 
And so we get into this kind of, eh, I don't know, I've, I've paid attention to the breath. You know, how long do I have to really have to do this? And um, if we can catch ourselves doing that, uh, it, it, it's really kind of funny and interesting to see just where the mind starts to go. Sometimes we, bec- we get into this mode, not necessarily because we're lazy or we're, we're tired, but more so because we're wanting to avoid something. So there might be something underneath, kind of the undercurrent of the experience that we're actually just not wanting to see. And so we find all these ways to avoid it. We have lots of strategies that fall under this particular hindrance because we don't want to be with maybe difficulty or the unknown. The unknown can be really scary. It doesn't really even matter what it is, but just going there, it's just a little too much for me today. I'll do it tomorrow. (laughs) You know, there's something really sweet about that, right? So it's just one of our coping mechanisms, way that we've learned a long time ago to take care of ourselves that's probably outdated. And um, with this practice, we can now start to question that. Well, wait a second. What's here? What am I missing here? What is it that I'm avoiding or just not really wanting to be present to? Is it really as bad as I, I think it might be? Um, so we can start to question that. So with soft and torpor, it's, uh, the simile is that it's like a bowl of water that is stagnant or stale. Um, sometimes it's said to have um, algae at the top of it. So it's kind of this mucky... Um, stale, kind of smelly water that that we really can't see through and we're not motivated to. <laughs> it's kind of gross. I don't really want to go there. I'm just going to stay over on this side and let it just be there. Um, so sloth and torpor. The last one is restlessness. And uh, sometimes it's restlessness and worry. Sometimes it's restlessness and remorse, so just depending on who's done the translation. But restlessness, many of us know that feeling of restlessness. We have a very restless culture. It's hard to sit still. It's hard to stop. It's hard to come to ease. Um, a lot of the time when I'm, when I'm teaching, especially people who are brand new to this practice, uh, we spend a lot of time just getting into our body, and maybe this is true for you. And I know for, my, for myself, it's depending on what's going on in my life. If there's a lot going on, if I'm really stressed out, um, it's really hard to just settle into the body, to really be here. It's hard to become still. It's hard to just stop. It's restlessness. Again, there's some kind of undercurrent that's similar to sloth and torpor. Of Maybe there's something underlying... Uh, that experience of restlessness that we just were really afraid to be with. And so sometimes it manifests as restlessness. Again, just another way that our body and mind has coped in the past that's probably outdated. And so um, I found this kind of interesting. This is from the Samyutta Nikaya. uh, And it's just a suggestion from the Buddha on working with restlessness and how not to work with restlessness. And he says, when the mind is restless, it is not the proper time for cultivating the following factors of enlightenment. So investigation of the doctrine, not a good time. Energy and rapture, not a good time. Uh, Because an agitated mind can hardly be quieted by them. And so sometimes that's what we go towards. We really, when we're restless, we, you can find yourself saying, okay, just, just settle down. I just got to bear down, <laughs> sit still, sit still. And we can put all this energy into trying to stop that type of energy. But of course, what are we doing? We're just agitating ourselves more. It's not helpful at all. Um, and so finding a way to come back into quiet. He says, when the mind is restless, it is proper time for cultivating the following factors of enlightenment, such as tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Because an agitated mind can easily be quieted by them. 
So finding a way to relax, finding a way to just come into ease without having to fight the restlessness, not going into aversion with the restlessness. Restlessness is uncomfortable, right? And so oftentimes it can be coupled with aversion because we don't want to feel that way. And so there can be this really this push and pull of, oh, I don't want it, and then it just agitates more. But instead, and it seems kind of counterintuitive sometimes, but instead finding a way to allow it to be there and to relax around it. Can I, can I be at ease even with this energy? Can I somehow relax around this uh, unsettled experience or this unsettled energy right now? And gently bring yourself to a place of rest. Sometimes it means uh, just laying down, getting as still as possible. Sometimes it means getting some of that energy to move. So maybe you go for a walk or a run or something like that. Um, allowing it to, to move through you rather than to fight it. Um, so there's different ways to work with restlessness. And the analogy here is that it's uh, like water whipped up by the wind. So there's lots of ripples, lots of waves crashing to and fro, and it can't be still. And because it's not still, we can't see through it. We get caught by it. So this is restlessness. The last one is doubt. And doubt is said to be murky water. Um, It's like a cloudy suspension that has been placed in a dark place. Uh, You can't see through that either. I went through a a really um, intense period of doubt. And it's still now and then it pops up. It seems to be the hindrance that um, shows up quite a bit for me. and doubt, it makes me think of Thule fog. So not our Bay Area fog so much. But if you go out to um, you know, Davis or Sacramento and you're out in the, in the fields there early in the morning, because of the temperature difference between the ground and the air, there's this Thule fog. And it's just this very low-lying fog. And it's, you can be walking through it. And if it's thick enough, you just can't see the ground. That's there. And this is like doubt. It's like we just we can't even see the ground beneath us anymore. It's very unsettling, uh, very ungrounded. Uh, often it's the fear of what's underneath that tule fog or that murky water, that cloudy water. Um, that there's something under there that we just we won't be able to handle, that we can't figure out. Um, that we, we don't know how to be with. Oftentimes, the changing nature of things can bring up a lot of, a lot of doubt as things in our life unfold and, and big changes happen, or even small changes. We can find ourselves in this place of doubt. Oh, I just don't know if I'm up to this or I'm even capable. Uh, we can find a lot of doubt in our practice. You know, I just don't, I don't know if this is for me. Everyone's sitting so still and quiet, and I bet they're all just working towards incredible enlightenment experiences, and I'm just here struggling to stay with this one breath, and I don't think I can do it. And of course, the person next to you is probably having the same experience, (laughs) or most likely. In fact, one of my first teachers, Andrea um, Fella, uh, she was telling a story about how she was having this incredible doubt that this person who was sitting in front of her, whoever it was, it didn't matter, it was whoever was sitting in front of her was just so much better at this than she was and that she just shouldn't even be bothering. Uh, and so she, she went to her teacher one day and, and told him this. And he said, you have no idea if World War III is going on in there. <laughs> All you're seeing is that they're able to sit still. You have no idea what's going on in their mind. Just as it was so quiet in this room earlier, we have no idea what's going on in each other's mind. You know, I know my mind was going all over the place in that 40 minutes. Just amazing, the manifestations going on in here. But I can sit really quietly and peacefully through it, but you have no idea. 
So this, this doubt that we get stuck in, judging mind, um, uncertainty, uneasy, the feeling of doubt, just mucky, got to figure it out, feeling of stuck. I'm just stuck. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn next. This is just doubt. And so all of the hindrances, they're just hindrances. They're just hindrances. They're not personal. You're not special because you have them. Because <laughs> we all have them. It's just manifestation. It's just the mind in, in many ways. In the Satipatthana, um, the hindrances are actually a part of the practice uh, where we're really using them as a place for contemplation. Um, these are manifestations of the mind that we can really start to learn more about ourselves and the way that we relate to our world and our, ourselves in it. And there's very distinct, specific instructions on how to work with the hindrances. Um, and so they're pretty simple. Not easy to remember. Not always easy to do, but the instructions themselves are pretty simple. And I'm going to paraphrase it, but basically with any of these hindrances, whether it's one or all, um, if a hindrance arises, simply knowing the conditions that led to the arising. Knowing just how did that happen? knowing that they have arisen as well. So that might be the first step. Just recognizing, oh, I think this is restlessness. And then seeing, you know, what is it that brings up restlessness? Oh, well, I had six cups of coffee earlier today. That might have something to do with it. Or it might be, well, my mind just keeps wanting to think about this experience that I had you know, this argument I had with uh, my boss earlier on in the week. It just keeps replaying it, and it's just bringing up all this restlessness. I can't sit still with it. And so starting to use actual contemplation, not just being with it, but really seeing a little bit, tracking a little bit. um, What are the conditions that led to this arising? Uh, Our sila... Our, our virtue, how is it that we are acting and speaking, has a huge effect on our hindrance creating. Um, so, for instance, if we've been lying all week and we're trying to keep track of our lies, then there's going to be a lot of restlessness. There's going to be possibly some doubt in our, uh, you know, how are people thinking of me? There's going to be uh, maybe some aversion. Ooh, I've got to stay away from that person because I don't remember what I said or what story I told. Right? So the way that we are behaving, our sila, has a huge effect. Oftentimes we can track different hindrances to our behavior. So if um, uh, another way of working with the hindrances is noticing when they're not present. So noticing when you are having a moment that is free of the hindrances, often that is um, uh, easy to see because there's either uh, factors of the seven factors of enlightenment, there's mindfulness, real mindfulness and concentration present. Um, There's equanimity there. There might be uh, a feeling of of real contentment and joy present. there might be, uh, oftentimes, actually, when we're concentrated, there's a lessening of the hindrances. When the mind is really able to focus, um, becomes stable. So knowing the flavor of non-hindrance is just as important as noticing the hindrance. We um, are hardwired to notice the hindrance, to notice what's wrong right now. Uh, I think it's, um, oh, what's his name who wrote The Buddha's Brain? Rick Hansen, thank you. Rick Hansen, who's local, uh, wrote the, the Buddha's Brain. Great book. Uh, he talks about our mind being hardwired to really see 
the negative. And those negative experiences, they stick to us like Velcro. And the positive ones stick to us like Teflon. And so we are hardwired to really look for the hindrance, what's wrong right now. And we often forget to notice the opposites, which are very important, actually, to our contentment and our ease and our happiness. In fact, in order to really hold and be able to really be present for the hindrances, we have to be able to recognize when they're not there and feel um, nourished by those moments. It's really okay to feel and allow those moments to be fully experienced. Allowing yourself to be nourished by them um, so that there can be more moments like that. Getting to know those moments just as much so that the cause and effect of those can be carried out later. Having more experience of non-hindrance. So all of this is recommended. Um, If you are noticing that you were able to remove a hindrance, so the hindrance arose, and then there was something that you were able to do to actually see it and then notice it passing, being aware of that as well. So noticing the different ways that just bringing awareness, concentration, wisdom, compassion, openness um, to these experiences of the hindrances is also something to bring attention to so that we befriend and really get to know these hindrances as just hindrances. Nothing more, nothing that special. Um, Just another experience that we need to know about and, and learn from. So I think I'll, I'll stop there so we can talk a little bit more about it and um, pass around the mic if there's any questions or comments about just your experience with the, the hindrances or if there's anything specific you'd like to know and maybe there's a specific experience that you are in right now um, or have been this week and want to talk a little bit about it. And we can spend a little time for that. Contentment or sloth and torpor? (laughs) Thanks. I just had a question. So restlessness, uh, do you feel like that's referring mostly to the mental restlessness, thoughts, um, just in what you were describing, or the body, or both? Both. I think it manifests in both. I think that... um, I think in a way one will fuel the other. For example, I use the caffeine example. You know, that's really a bodily experience that then influences the mind. And, and, um, and then you know, the mind starts getting restless and it's hard to settle down. And then the opposite can also be true. Oftentimes I find that when my mind is restless and it's going, 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 I will feel it in my body. There's a tightening, maybe a quickening of my pulse or my heart beat. Um, my breath is shallow. You know, there's all these different manifestations that become physical. Um, or sometimes there's just a ton of energy that um, isn't uh, just a smooth energy, but more of just I, I can't sit still. Like I can't keep my body still. And... Um, There was a teacher that recently on retreat uh, at Spirit Rock was sharing that, and this is someone who's a very respected teacher, a beautiful teacher, and she was sharing that the first, I think she said the first 10 years, she could barely sit still. And she just kept at it, but her body just would not sit still. And so that can be true. And there's sometimes these hindrances, they have their own lifespan. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, so this week I experienced extreme aversion uh-huh. uh, because <laughs> my neighbor is, uh, is, has made the decision to, uh, oh, they have made the decision to cut down a couple of trees. Uh-huh. And, you know, I see these trees and I've seen the hummingbirds and all the beautiful birds in the trees and their fruit trees and climate change and uh, shade and multiple, multiple reasons why I feel this aversion. Yeah. At any rate, um, <laughs> it's very hard for me to conquer that. And, um, but I think that I recognize that it, it may be, I, th- I think there's an element of they don't know, maybe, mm-hmm. to be charitable. Mm-hmm. And then it may also be that they simply don't care to be less charitable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if they don't care, uh, I think that not caring probably does come ultimately from some element of ignorance and um, not, in a sense, from, uh, as it were, evil. <laughs> and therefore, I think that for me to, to conquer that aversion is, is about uh, possibly thinking, okay, I'll join the tree planting group, I'll plant a tree, I'll deal with the aversion that way. And uh, maybe it can be more peaceful for me and and the world. Yeah, actually, it's great. It's a great point, especially um, for those who are who have that um, energy to act, um, an energy to make a difference, and to stand up for injustices and. for things like, you know, impacting our planet and all these things. Um, Those are wonderful things. Action is good, you know, especially when it's coming from a place of seeing clearly. It's when we are really caught in the hatred of it that um, the actions that we then take out of that will always be tainted with that, right? And so um, it might be that the aversion is going to stay there for a little while, even as you do your other activities. And so when that happens, just being really conscious that the aversion is here, oh, there's my neighbor and there's the aversion, (laughs) and really tracking that and being aware of that being aware that if you do end up having a conversation with your neighbor and feeling that aversion arise, be really present with, I'm just really aversive right now. I need to be aware that that is part of the experiences I'm giving, you know, as I'm talking with them or I'm interacting with them or noticing I just completely shut down and I won't even look at them as they go get their mail. <laughs> And so starting to notice how it shows up. It's not something you'll have to blame, and I'm saying you, but I'm, you know, this is all of us. You know, it's not something you have to blame yourself for, but just be really conscious of uh, when it does arise, because it'll arise. Uh, it's said that it's only when you get to certain levels of attainment in in this tradition, that you will be completely free of the hindrances. And there's different levels of these attainments, and then with each level, there's a releasing um, of these hindrances, um, which I do believe is true. And I think that most of us haven't gotten there yet. (laughs) So in the meantime, bringing awareness to how is it actually affecting us? You know, how effective is a angry, ill-willed protester as opposed to one that is really deeply rooted in the cause but also in truth, seeing kind of the larger view of things, really coming from a place of peace? You know, what do we put out in the world? I said this last week when I talked about generosity Gandhi's wonderful phrase of be the change you wish to see in the world. And I think that the hindrances um, make a good practice of that. 
You know, are we acting from them or are we acting from clarity? It can be the same action, actually. But the energy we put towards it and the way we are in, in relationship with it is different, isn't it? So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, I'm still unclear on doubt um, yeah. and, and what it's supposed to mean. I know mm-hmm. that sometimes I'm certainly doubt uh, the practice or other things um, that I'm concerned that maybe it's not um, true or not right for me. Uh-huh. And I wonder how my relationship with those thoughts is supposed to be and how that applies to this hindrance. Yeah. Say the last part again. How, the, how this hindrance is, is supposed to be thought of in that context. Oh, how is it a hindrance? Yeah, it's interesting because, um, you know, in this tradition, we're asked to really see, don't just take things on faith, you know, which is a wonderful thing about this tradition. It's never said just because, for instance, I said it for certain, or the Buddha said it, or whoever said it, um, that you should believe it. Um, The instructions are, go find out for yourself, investigate, see what's true for you. And that is a uh, strongly that is strongly rooted in the tradition and in all the teachings. Um, and so there's there's some kind of healthy level of doubt we would think. Um, so maybe the right word there is um, uh, discernment, really being able to see you know well, what seems true and untrue, what seems wholesome and unwholesome. And starting through wisdom to start to see clearly and being able to discern between the two. Um, And then Jack Kornfield, I think, is the one who said uh, that the experience of doubt is just the universe whispering, it's time to grow. (laughs) So sometimes it's from that mucky, cloudy water um, that the lotus blooms out of. You know, so it's sometimes it's from that that great wisdom can come out of, um, but only when we then are able to see through it all, right? So doubt is really the experience of the, that cloudiness, and you've probably experienced it, if not in this practice, then in other places where, um, you know, it's, it's just such a natural thing for us all to experience at some point, just this real uncertainty. And un- dis-ease with that uncertainty. You know, it's not just the uncertainty. There's a lot of uncertainty, and that's actually just how things are. <laughs> things are uncertain. But it's not being at ease with that and feeling kind of stuck as if we don't have a way um, to be with it or we're not sure where to turn next or we don't know how to fix it, things like that. Um, so I don't know if that's helpful. Um, yeah, it might just be that the next time it comes up and you see it, oh, this is doubt. <laughs> and then you can explore it for yourself. Yeah. Um, when you speak of aversion, I, I mm-hmm. see, it, I f- think of it more as a resistance, uh-huh. just a, a contraction. Um, I'm thinking more about hard emotions of grief and sadness and sometimes anxiety Mm -hmm. and anger uh, that come up sometimes in a sitting meditation. Would you consider those hindrances or just the experience of being a human? It's a great question. And it's actually why at the very beginning uh, that I said that these are held in a different, as a different, Um, collection of experience than just emotion. And I think that the two, sometimes it gets kind of confusing. It's a great question, though, and I love that you asked it so I can clarify it again. We can experience grief and anger and sadness and um, nervousness, even anxiety without the hindrances. Uh, 
But in order for that to happen, there's presence, there's maybe even some concentration there, um, there's wisdom holding it, there's openness holding it. We're really available for those emotions. They, they arrive uh, and arise, and then they fall away and they have their lifespan. The hindrances are what really cloud what's going on. So you might be having the experience of anger and what's added on top of it is aversion. Oh, I don't want to feel this. Or everyone just needs to leave me alone because I'm feeling this. Or, you know, this shouldn't be happening right now. I need, you know, or so-and-so is making me feel this way. <laughs> you know, so that's kind of the extra piece that is layered onto just more of that raw experience. Yeah, it's a great question. And it's so interesting once we start to see that we can tease all these different things apart in our experience and start to see each one clearly. Oh, there's the anger, but then there's the aversion. It's two different things. It's just fascinating to be able to see the two because when we're not caught by it, then it's just aversion and it's you know just anger or it's just sadness or whatever it is. And I think I, I agree with that. I think what happens sometime is um, um, I think this is survival or coping mechanism that we humans have developed not to feel a certain level of grief. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've had some loss in my life in the last year and I'm processing it one piece at a time. Yeah. And I can see the aversion sometimes when I'm sitting that the grief is coming up and I just don't give myself permission to experience the full extent of the experience of that grief. And I see the resistance, and then sometimes I'm able to release the resistance and be with the experience, be present. And sometimes I just don't have the bandwidth to do it on certain days because I'm spent. (laughs) Yeah. So it's this beautiful thing, isn't it? It's It's very sweet how we protect ourselves, actually. And you don't need to fight that. In fact, it's enough to just be aware that that's what's happening. There's the aversion. Oh, yeah, I see it. I just, it's protecting me right now. That's just what's happening. So there isn't a need to, you know, push it away. Um, simply by being aware of it, you might notice, oh, it's just aversion, and then it just pops. Oh, it's not needed right now. And other times you might notice, no, it's actually getting stronger. Like, I really just can't be with this right now. I'm going for a walk. <laughs> and it helps when we become aware of the judgment yeah. that we have of that experience. Yes. Again, then, another added layer. That's just the mind. It's just the mind. Judgment, that kind of judgment is just, it's just the mind. But it's, it's great when we can start to see it all. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you, everyone. We actually need to to stop because it's that time and we're going to dedicate our time together here. So we'll just do a shorter dedication of merit. And so just taking a moment to um, become present in your body again. And this is a time to acknowledge the wholesomeness of being here, wholesomeness of practicing together, wholesomeness of cultivating our understanding, our minds, our hearts in this way, taking this time out of our week to do this and to do this together. And as we do practice in this way and cultivate in this way, we begin to realize that this practice really isn't just about us. That this practice has an impact that is much larger than the individual. And so if you'd like to take a moment silently to just uh, to dedicate your practice today to someone in your life, or someone you encounter, maybe you don't even know them very well. Maybe it's a larger group of people. Maybe it's all beings everywhere. And 
And so we dedicate our practice ultimately to all beings everywhere, wishing that all beings may be happy and content, that all beings may be safe from inner and outer harm, that all beings be healthy in their mind and in their body. May all beings have ease on their journey. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.